0: to look out and to see faces that I've known for 20 years and then to see some faces that are brand new to me. Um, My name is Tom. I have uh, been, I was here back in 1995 as was mentioned and this is where my ministry began so it is exciting for me to be back with you. We are going to do a little bit of visual this morning because I have learned over the years that many of us are audio learners, but some of us are also visual learners. And so we're going to do some visual things this morning. Hopefully, those of you who are on the sides can see and everything. But before we dive into God's Word, would you pray with me? Father God, we are grateful for the opportunity to be together. And we are grateful, God, to be reminded of your amazing grace. And so, God, I pray that as we open your Word together, that we would be reminded once again of the invitation to come and to be in relationship with you. May the words that are spoken, God, this morning be from you and you alone. And may they penetrate our hearts and transform our lives into deeper commitment to you. Because of Jesus, in his name we pray. Amen. Recently, some children were asked, if you can ask God one question... What one question would you be able to ask God? Would you want to ask God if you had the chance? And a few of the kids wanted to ask questions like, how did Jesus walk on water? Were there dinosaurs on Noah's Ark? Will there be a McDonald's in heaven? Okay, that's what a few of the kids wanted to know. But many of the kids wanted to ask God a question that had a different nature and tone all together. What does God look like? What does heaven look like? Why did God make people? Why does God love people? Is God in heaven all alone or does he have friends? And I was impressed when I read this article that many of the children wanted to ask God questions that had a deeper Uh, Inquiry of his nature and character many of these children really wanted to know what the kingdom of God really looked like And this morning we're going to look at a parable from Jesus in the gospel of Matthew That reveals to us the nature and character of God We're going to look together at what the kingdom of God really looks like Now the word parable we get from the word parabolo. Okay. Now, the word para means alongside or beside, and the word ballo is where we get our word for ball. And what do we do with a ball? We what? We throw it. And so a parable is a story, a teaching, that Jesus throws alongside a truth he's trying to convey that reveals the nature and character of God. So if you want to follow along, we'll be in Matthew chapter 20. For a predominant amount of our time together Uh, But before we look at Matthew 20, we need to understand the context for this parable Why does jesus tell us this parable and for that we have to look back one chapter to matthew 19 In matthew 19 jesus has an encounter with a rich young ruler and this rich young man comes to jesus and he asks What must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus responds that he has to be willing to let go of what he holds most dear. In this case, this man is charged to let go of his wealth. And the rich young man refuses to let go of his wealth and walks away from Jesus. Now, in response to that encounter, Peter, one of the disciples, speaks up as only Peter tends to do in the Gospels and says this in verse 27 of Matthew 19. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus, that guy, he couldn't leave his wealth to follow you. But we, we've left our homes, we've left our families, we've left our jobs, we've left everything to follow you. What will there be for us, Jesus? What's, what's in this for me, Jesus? And so Jesus begins to answer him, and then if you look in verse 29, Jesus says, And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And then to continue this line of thought, to continue to answer Peter's question, to continue to address this truth, Jesus will now throw alongside this teaching a parable that demonstrates and illustrates the nature and character of God. Matthew chapter 20, let's read just verse 1. For, to continue this story, Peter, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. Now, there are three things we need to learn about this this uh, first verse. First is about the landowner. Okay, this landowner, this word landowner has in its meaning the idea that this person owns the vineyard. The land, the house, and everything within sight of it. It's a singular individual who is the big cheese, the head honcho, the one in charge. And so if Jesus is trying to convey a teaching that reveals something in real life, who do you think the landowner represents in real life? Take a guess. Anybody? God. The landowner represents God. You can speak out in church. It's okay. You're not going to hell if you yell out an answer, especially when I ask. Okay. This will be a little interactive. So yell that out. All right. I won't pick on you. Maybe I'll pick on Tom a little bit, but Tom, Tom and I have a history, so he deserves it. So, um, the landowner is God, and that is important for us to understand. The second thing we need to understand is about the workers. The workers. Now, It was very common in Jesus' day if you did not have permanent employment. It was very common if you needed to work for a day that you would go to a designated spot in town and wait there hoping someone would come by and hire you to work in a field or in construction or doing something. And so these men, they get up early in the morning and they go to the designated place to wait to be hired. Listen, this still happens today in Indianapolis. There are places in Indianapolis where people will go and will wait, hoping someone comes by to help them, to hire them for work. I got to go to Israel last year, and outside the Damascus Gate, outside of Old City Jerusalem, people still wait in Jerusalem every day to be hired. This is how they would make their living. They would go and just pray that someone would hire them. And here comes this landowner, ...to hire these men to go work in his vineyard. So we know about the landowner, we know about the workers. The last thing we need to know about is the work day. The work day in Jesus' time starts at 6 o'clock in the morning, about the time the sun rises... ...and it lasts until about 6 o'clock in the evening, about the time the sun sets. There is no electricity in Jesus' day. Okay, No way to see really well in the dark... And so they worked when it was light out, and they didn't work when it was dark out. And so they started around 6 o'clock in the morning, and they would work typically for 12 hours and be done around 6 p.m. in the evening. And that's vital for us as we continue to read in the story. Let's read now just verse 2 of Matthew 20. He, the landowner, agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them to work In his vineyard. Now, a denarius is roughly equal to about 16 to 18 cents in today's culture. Not a lot of money. And back in Jesus' day, it was a single silver coin that was the common pay for someone who worked for a day. And typically, it was just enough money to pay for food for one day. And many of us have no idea what it was like to work in those conditions. Because we have either worked or are working in jobs where we get paid weekly. Or twice a month, the 1st and the 15th. Or monthly maybe even. Maybe any of us, not any of us, have ever worked a job where we got paid per day and just enough money to live on to buy food for that day that's the situation these workers are facing and so as jesus is telling this story everyone who hears it the disciples and everyone with an earshot of jesus understand one thing about these workers they are desperate they have a desperate need no work Equals no pay. And no pay equals no food for the day. They have a desperate need. Now that's important as we continue to read. Let's read now verse 3. About the third hour, so if the workday starts at 6 o'clock in the morning, the third hour is what? Smart people, let's hear it. Yell it out. 9 o'clock, some of your translations actually cheat and tell you, it's nine o'clock in the morning, about nine o'clock in the morning, the landowner goes out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. And so they went. He, the landowner goes in, goes out again about the sixth hour. What time is that? Noon. And again, about the ninth hour, what time is that? Three o'clock. Some of you are like, I see the, I see the, the smoke working in some of our brains. It's like, okay, wait, what, what, nine, three, nine plus, okay. Yeah, three o'clock in the afternoon, he goes out and he does the same thing. Now, this is important for us to understand one clear thing about what we just read. The landowner and these workers never agree on a price. I don't know if you caught that or not. They never agree on a price. He agrees to give the first workers a denarius. But these later workers, this is what he says. Go and work in my vineyard and I will give you whatever is fair, whatever is right. So not only are these workers desperate because they recognize that the workday is going away and they're about to run out of time to work. These workers, they are also trusting. They are trusting that the landowner will do What the landowner says he will do go and work and I will give you whatever is right Whatever is fair and they trust enough to go and work Now let's keep reading verse six About the eleventh hour. Come on. What time is that? Five o'clock with one hour left in the workday five o'clock He goes out and still found others standing around, and he asked them, Why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. Now, don't get the idea one minute that these guys are sitting around the marketplace, having a cup of coffee, playing some cards, just chilling out, enjoying their day. Because when I was taught this story as a young person, this is what I was taught about these workers. They were lazy. They were sitting around doing nothing. But that's not what the scripture tells us. Scripture tells us that when they were asked, what are you doing here? Their response is, no one wanted to hire us. And so I picture landowner after landowner and business owner after business owner coming by and going, looking at the group of guys standing there and saying, okay, I'll take you and I'll take you and you and you, you come and work in my vineyard, probably looking for the strongest or the brightest or the most capable workers. But these guys, (laughs) these guys maybe aren't the most capable. Maybe they aren't the brightest. Maybe they aren't the strongest workers. I picture these workers like the last ones chosen for sports in junior high. You remember those days? They would split up the groups and pick out two students, and then the students would have to pick out teams in junior high for sports and gym class. And they'd say, oh, I'll take you, I'll take you, I'll take you. And inevitably, there was one or two people that nobody else wanted on the team that were chosen last. That's these guys. And if that were you in junior high, I'm sorry to bring up bad memories. But that's these guys. That's what these guys are. So there's one hour left in the day. And they are incredibly desperate. And they are trusting to go work for an hour. But they also feel unwanted. Nobody wants to hire them. But this landowner, this landowner comes up to them and says, you, I want you to come and work in my vineyard. And I can imagine their reaction. Me? You want me? Yes, I want you to come and work in my vineyard. And with one hour left in the day, they went. Now, let's keep reading because here's what the story gets really, really good. Verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. So the foreman has everyone line up, and the people who were hired last are in the front of the line, People who were worked at the 11th hour, hired at the 11th hour, they're at the front, and at the very end of the line are people who were hired at 6 o'clock in the morning. That's what we see, this line of people getting ready to be paid. Verse 9, the workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius, a full day's pay. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Now, remember back with me. When these workers were hired first at six o'clock in the morning, what did we say that they were? They were desperate. No work Equals no pay, no pay equals no food. So I would imagine when they were hired at six o'clock in the morning, picture yourself in their shoes. You get up really early in the morning before the sun rises, you go to a spot, the landowner comes by and hires you, you would feel incredibly relieved. I get to eat today, I get to provide for my family. Today, I would imagine that even though that they knew they were going to be spending 12 hours in the vineyard working really hard I would imagine they would be incredibly excited to work to provide for themselves and their families And I would also imagine that they would be incredibly grateful to the landowner for hiring them and now It's 12 hours later And they are not grateful And they are not relieved and they are not excited. They are mad. And why are they mad? Well, verse 12 tells us why they're mad. It says in verse 12, they say to the landowner, You have made them equal to us. That word, when you when you do a study of that word, that word equal has in its translation this idea of appearances and perception. So these guys are mad because now this landowner has made these other workers look like equals to them. Their status was called into question. Their perceived value was called into question. They think Listen, we worked hard. We're out in the fields all day. We deserve more. You have made these guys look like equals to us when clearly they are not. They are not so mad about the amount of money as they are about their now perceived status. Status. Identity. Value. perception. These are ongoing issues for the disciples throughout the Gospels. And I won't make you turn there, but just two chapters before we read this, in Matthew chapter 18, it begins by saying, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The disciples are sitting around trying to figure out whose status is the best in the kingdom of God. And now here in chapter 20 of Matthew, Jesus is telling this story in specific response to Peter's question, what's in this for me, Jesus? There's this ongoing issue of status. And so Jesus has dealt with this in the past, and he's dealing with this in the present. And unfortunately, it will not be the last time that Jesus has to deal with this issue with his disciples. In fact, I believe the next time he has to deal with this with his disciples... It will break his heart. And it's interesting because Ben had no idea what I was preaching about this morning and read the scripture that leads right up to the verse that I want to show you in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verse 24, we read this simple verse. Right after Ben finished reading, we read this. Also a dispute arose among themselves, the disciples, as to who was considered to be the greatest. Did you catch that? Also among them, the disciples, arose this argument about who was considered to be the greatest. Now... If you paid attention earlier in the service, you know where they are when this is taking place. Where are they when this argument is happening? Where are they? They're at the Last Supper. Here's what's crazy about that. I learned a word recently, and it's a Latin word, and it's called triclinium. And it means, in Latin, three couches, and it describes... How people ate a meal in Jesus' day. This is a bird's eye view looking down from a ceiling on a dining room in Jesus' day. This is how the room was set up with three couches in a U shape. Okay, so when we read when Ben read earlier in the text how they were reclining at the table This is how they ate back then They did not sit in chairs with a table in front of them like we sit in today No, they had these couches and people would lay down terrible artist, So forgive me They would lay down on these couches and they would have these tables in front of them on these three couches and they would have the food on these tables And so they would lay down on the couch, on their stomach or on their side and eat. That's how they ate. Kind of weird, right? I mean, you would think you wouldn't be able to digest really well or whatever, but this is how they ate. They would recline on the couch and they would lean over and they would be able to kind of look around or look across and see how people ate. Now, traditionally, the person of honor, the person who hosted the meal or the person of honor would sit in this position right here. Now listen to this, this is vital. Once the host or the person of honor sat down at the meal, everyone else would then take their seat around the table in descending order of importance around the table. They would sit based on who was the most important. And so as Jesus is telling them in Luke chapter 22, I have so looked forward to this meal with you because this is the last time I'll get to eat with you. I'm about to have my body broken for you and for all of mankind. My blood is about to be poured out for you and all of mankind. As Jesus is pouring out his heart to his guys, his closest friends, their greatest concern was, what's my rank, Jesus? Where do I get to sit at the table, Jesus? Why do I get to sit here and he gets to sit there? Why do I have to sit here and he has to sit, he gets to sit there? I'm, I'm better than him, Jesus. Jesus, who's better, me or him? That's what they will argue about when Jesus has hours left to live. And that's what Jesus is dealing with. Here in Matthew chapter 20, this idea of where they find their value, where they find their status, where they find their identity. Now let's finish up the story because we got to see how the landowner responds. We got to see how the landowner responds in verse 13. But he, the landowner answered one of them, friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. And I love the fact that the landowner asks three rhetorical questions. Questions where the answer really isn't even needed because the answers are obvious. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Yes. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Yes. Are you envious because I am generous? Yes. They were envious of the now equal status. And that's why they're mad. And Jesus says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. My friends, I believe this story speaks powerfully to us because just as issues of status and identity and value and worth were ongoing issues with the disciples, I believe they are ongoing issues for us. Since January the 5th of 1995, I have been serving predominantly in full-time ministry with uh, about a year and a half exception where God had me doing some other things to get me ready for for what was next in ministry And one of the ongoing issues I have had in discussions with people One of the things that distracts us from our walk as followers of God One of the things that derails our minds is this ongoing issue of where we find our worth Where we find our status where we find our value And so I think this text speaks powerfully to us. In fact, I think it speaks powerfully to us, regardless of where we are in our walk with Christ, but I think it speaks to us differently. First, for those of us who have already surrendered our lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ, this speaks powerfully. Because if you've surrendered your life to Christ, if you have at one point made the decision to follow God with your life, remember back with me, do you remember... Do we remember our desperate need? That without Christ, we were lost? That we had a sin problem that could not be solved on our own? Do we remember how excited we were when we first trusted that Jesus did indeed pay the price for our sin and that we can be forgiven? Do we remember the relief and the gratitude when we went from feeling unwanted because of our sin to recognizing that we are invited into a relationship as children of God to the God of all creation. Do we remember that? Do we remember that still? Do we remember as followers of God how we have a new identity? We go from slaves to sin to sons and daughters of the living God. Do we remember that as Followers of God, we have a new identity, a new purity even. That we go from being sinful people to now washed white as snow, made into new creations? Do we remember that we have a new power as followers of God? That the same power we celebrated last week as Jesus rose from the grave is the same power now alive in us. That we have access to that power of God all because of Jesus. Do we remember that? Do we remember That as followers of God, because of Jesus, we are members of Christ's body. That we are set apart by God. That we are adopted as his child. That we are made complete in Christ. That we are free from condemnation. That we cannot be separated from the love of God. That we are, right now, citizens of heaven, all because of Jesus. Do we remember that we are the salt of the earth? That we are the light of the world? That we are a branch of the true vine? That we can approach the throne of grace with confidence and we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength all because of Jesus. Do we remember that? And my my guess is that many of us who are followers of Christ remember that. And so maybe the question for those of us who have surrendered our lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ, maybe the question that God would have for us is simply this. Is Jesus enough Is Jesus enough or do we find that like the workers who were hired first that we want and expect a little more Because if Jesus is really enough for me and I'm just gonna be honest with you this morning if Jesus is really enough for me then my status and my value and my worth should be found only in who I am in Christ and nothing else. But that's not always true for me. Because sometimes I find value and worth in status, in my accomplishments, in how I perform in life, the tasks before me. Sometimes my value and worth and my identity is found in my perception of other people's opinions of me. That my status is found based on how other people look at me or see me. I mean, if Jesus is really enough for us as followers of God, then why are we so quick to judge someone or to gossip about someone or be, or be critical of someone in order to put them down that we might be lifted up in status and identity if Jesus is really enough for us? I mean, as followers of God, if we would say that Jesus is really enough for us, then why are we envious of other people when they have something that we want or we think we need, if Jesus is really enough? I mean, if Jesus is really enough for us as followers of God, then things like money and possessions and Food and homes and all these different things, they would be looked at as opportunities to serve God, to point other people to Him, instead of things that we hoard or that we chase after or that we feel like we need to get us through the next moment or the next day or the next season if Jesus was really enough. This question is Jesus enough? It's a sobering question, because it makes me stop and ask, what do I add to Jesus in my life to find value? What do I add in order to find a place of status or purpose or worth? Jesus plus what? Jesus plus my next vacation? Jesus plus my career? Jesus plus my family? Jesus plus my clothes? Jesus plus how I look in the mirror? Jesus plus... Sports, Jesus plus what I do on the internet, Jesus plus social media, Jesus plus a drink, Jesus plus a drug. What do I add to my life in order to find value and worth and status? And I know what some of you may be thinking because, again, in 20 years of ministry, this is what I hear when I ask people where you find your worth and value and status. Someone would say, well, Tom, you don't understand I'm a mother. I'm a father. I'm a son. I'm a daughter. I'm a grandfather. I'm a grandmother. I'm a nurse. I'm a doctor. I'm a teacher. I'm a builder. I'm an accountant. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm dependable. I'm reliable. I'm valuable. I'm needed. I'm wanted. I'm admired. I'm important, Tom. You don't understand. And praise God, some of that might be true for us. But the question is this. If all of those things were stripped away, And all we had left was Jesus. Would Jesus be enough for me? Would Jesus be enough for you? Or do we look to other things to find value and worth and status? It's a sobering, sobering question. Because I don't know how it happens That as followers of God, we go from being grateful and thankful and excited and relieved to feeling like we want more. I don't know how it happens. But I believe it happens because we take our eyes off of God in a moment-by-moment walk and we place them on ourselves. And maybe as followers of God, it's time that we repent. And we take our eyes off of ourselves and we are grateful once again for all we have in Christ. Maybe it's time for us to stop worrying about where we get to sit at the table and grateful that we're even invited to sit with Jesus at all. So this, this uh, you have a project. I have a project for you. Those of us who have surrendered our lives to the Lordship of Christ, I won't be here next week to check on you, and this is not mandatory. But this is my challenge for you. My challenge for you is simply this. Go home and find some post-it notes or index cards and on those post-it notes and index cards write down this question is Jesus enough and then take those post-it notes or index cards and place them Near things that you look towards to find value or worth or status Maybe you have this idea that your value is found by how you look Take the post-it note and stick it on your mirror and look when you look in the mirror recognize that your value is not found in how you look your your value is found is that you are a loved and forgiven child of God Now don't get me wrong please shower okay please put deodorant on please dress appropriately modestly but that's not where our value is found it's not where my value is found Maybe you have a hobby where you get a lot of acclaim, or a lot of praise, a lot of, a lot of people say, wow, you're really good at this. Take an index card or a post-it note and stick it near where you do that hobby. And ask, is Jesus enough or do I need to do this to find value? Maybe you have an issue with the internet, and you go to the internet to find value and worth and purpose, take a post-it note and stick it on your computer screen, is Jesus enough, and ask yourself, enjoy what God's given you technology-wise, but that's not where your value is found. Maybe you have a food issue, take a post-it note and stick it on the refrigerator, and the next time you go to to the refrigerator to find value and worth and meaning, ask yourself, is Jesus enough? Enjoy food. I love food. But that's not where my value is found. My value is found that I am a loved child of God. But for those of us who have yet to surrender our lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ, there are some of us in the room this morning who have yet to do that. Please recognize your desperate need. Please recognize the fact that apart from Jesus, you have nothing. And with him, you can have everything. Not the riches of this world, but value and purpose and meaning and hope for today and for eternity. Maybe you have trouble trusting that God is who he says he is, that he will do what he says he will do, that his plans are better than your plans. Maybe you have this feeling of feeling unwanted. Because you know what you've done in the past. You know your sin. And you cannot possibly imagine that a God would love you. But this landowner, (laughs) this landowner looks at you and says, you, I want you. I want you to come and work in my vineyard. And so God's word for you this morning is Jesus is enough He's enough He's enough for your family. He's enough to forgive your sin. He's enough to wipe the slate clean. He's enough for your marriage. He's enough To give you the value that you've looked every other place to find only to come up wanting more He is the well that never runs dry. Jesus is enough and I said at the very beginning that we were going to look at two characteristics about God. I didn't give you a number, but here are the two things we learned. The first thing is this. The landowner is inviting. He wants all people, all people, all people to come into a relationship with him. He invites every single one of us, regardless of what you've done, regardless of your past, regardless of your economic status, regardless of your family history, regardless, 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 he invites everyone into a relationship with him. And the other thing we learn about the landowner is the last three words of verse 15 where the the landowner says, I am generous. We worship and serve a generous God who gives us way more than we need and much more than we deserve. Some of us came to Christ at a young age, and some of us came to Christ older, and some of us have yet to come to surrender our lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ, and the thing we learn from this text is that it's never too late. It is never too late to come to Jesus. And even if you waited until your very last breath to do so, you can come to Christ. The question is, why would you want to wait? Why would you wait? This earth, this, this world, has all kinds of lures and temptations that do not satisfy. Only Christ does. And we can try and try and try and try to find value and worth and meaning and purpose, only to come up wanting. I heard somebody call that once, the cul-de-sac of stupidity. Where we try something and it doesn't fill us. And so, well, maybe more of what doesn't satisfy might eventually satisfy. <laughs> the cul-de-sac of stupidity. And the reality is it doesn't work. Because our chains are gone and our sins are set free only because of Jesus. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And some of us are going through incredible things right now. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, I am Enough. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for your invitation. We are grateful for your generosity. And God, we feel in a desperate need. We have difficulty at sometimes trusting. And God, we feel at times unwanted because of our sin. But God, you have invited us into a relationship with you that we might know who you are. That we might be set free from sin. All because of Jesus. Would you remind us this week that Jesus is enough. That he is all that we need. That you have given us everything else in this life to enjoy, to be used, to help others know you. But God, would you take our eyes off of ourselves and place them once again back on you. That we might be excited, that we might be relieved, and that we might feel incredible gratitude because of what you have done. In our lives God remind us this week that Jesus is enough. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.